Awesome. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you guys for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Glad that you join us for worship. And like we were talking about, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here. And there's a bunch like we were talking about this morning is that small groups is really the best way to do that. And so uh, we'd love to invite you to a small group. You can find all the information on our website or in the lobby. And it's the best way to get plugged in and get connected to the community here, be growing in your faith. Um, Saturday as well, open God's word with you guys. We're on the front end of a series as we begin the new year that's taking a look. It's all about identity. You see, all of us have the questions. We all ask the questions. We wrestle with the questions about our identity and purpose. Who am I really? What defines me? What's my purpose? What is the reason that I'm here? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? Where do I look for my sense of value and worth and significance? And as we started the series, we saw how the, the Bible's answer to those questions stands in stark contrast to the world's answers to those questions. We saw how our culture tells us the way that you really find and become the true you, who you really are, is by looking deep into your own heart to discover your innermost desires and then to express without inhibition whatever it is that you find there. But we saw in the, two weeks ago as we looked at Colossians chapter chapter 3, that the Bible shows us that what's at the depths of our hearts isn't something that should be put on parade, but it's something that we need to continually put to, to death. It's our sinful nature. And we saw how what we need deep, deep in our hearts is sin, that what we need most is not expression, but is redemption. Instead, we saw how looking inward, instead of looking inward to discover and define ourselves, the Bible tells us the way that we really figure out who we really are and what we were made to be and how we are called to live our purposes by looking upwards at Jesus because he both perfectly demonstrates and shows us who we were always made to be, but he also, through his death and his resurrection, that we're actually offered redemption and renewal so that we can actually become the people that he shows us we were always made to be. And so... Last week, we saw how at the most foundational level, the, the God-given identity that Jesus demonstrates and redeems us untowards is that, that we might be God's image-bearing uh, representatives, that we would be people who with our actions and our attitudes reflect his nature and his character into the world. And we saw how that is, that is such a life-giving identity and purpose and for a bunch of reasons. First of all, we saw is that it, what it means is that you don't have to seek out and you don't have to earn and you don't have to merit a sense of identity and significance and worth, but instead that we have that intrinsically by virtue of being made in the image of God. And we saw as well that the identity as image bearers is it's good news because it infuses a sense of meaning and purpose into every area of our lives, not just the parts that appear to have meaning and purpose, but the ones that are difficult and painful, even the mundane things of life, because we get to see them as opportunities to reflect God's image and show him, reveal him to the world. The problem we saw, though, as we closed last week, was that instead of receiving and living in light of the identity God gives us as his image-bearing representatives, we, we reject that in favor of clinging to our own manufactured identities. Instead of letting God define us and in resting in the identity he gives us, uh, we choose to define ourselves, and we rebelliously act as take God's place and act as king and creator. And we saw how that's at the very heart of what sin really is. And our sin, it causes us not only to fail to reflect God's image rightly, but it causes us to fail to honor it in the lives of others. And, and so our proverbial image-bearing mirrors are broken and shattered by sin. The good news of the gospel, as we saw every week as we did last week, is that, is that where we failed, Jesus did not. 
Right? He bore God's image perfectly, and he didn't do it just as an example. He did it on our behalf for us. And the good news of the gospel is that when we confess our sin and our rejection and our failure to live in the identity God gives us, that what happens is by faith, Jesus begins to redeem and restore us. And he, by the power of his spirit, begins to put our proverbial image-bearing mirrors back together so that we can actually increasingly more and more over time rightly reflect the God whose image we bear and whose identity we have been given. And the reality is, is that as much as we'd like that image-bearing repair work that Jesus does in us to be quick or instant or at least even like a constant trajectory, uh, it's not, right? Any of you who've been following Jesus for more than like 10 or 15 minutes uh, realize that that is like a stock chart, right? In our lives and our, and our growth and following him, is, it's, not a, it's not a straight line, right? There's lots of dips and valleys in the midst of it. And it's, it's the reality of kind of the ongoing, slow, nonlinear nature of our ongoing going sanctification and our image-bearing reflection of Jesus. That, that's why it's so important to understand and rest in this next crucial aspect of our identity in Christ that we're offered through Christ. And it's simply this, that we are forgiven. You see, what I want to show you this morning as we study God's word is that the degree to which you embrace and rely on the forgiveness that you have because of Jesus, it will be the degree to which you are actually enabled and empowered to live out the image that he has made in you. The degree to which you embrace and rely on the forgiveness he offers you that you have through him, that'll be the degree to which you are actually free to grow in and to live out the image-bearing identity that you have been given. And if we're trusting in or relying on something else, what's going to happen is that our ongoing image-bearing reflection process, that's going to always be crippled. And so my heart this morning is that you might see the good news about uh, where our forgiveness comes from, how that works, and that it might actually set us free so that we might be able to be the people God calls us to be. So with that in mind, let me pray. We'll dive into God's word this morning and we'll go from there. Jesus, thanks so much for our time together and thank you for your word. God, we ask as we gather this morning that uh, you might speak to us through it. And God, uh, our, the default mode of our heart is uh, not to put ourselves under the good authority of your word, but is instead to make our own word our own authority. And, and so, God, we need you to keep softening our hearts and shaping us and so that uh, your word is what uh, shapes our hearts and our lives. And so help us to see it for the good news it really is this morning. God, help us to see the reality of our forgiveness in you, uh, where that comes from and what it's all about. Help us to see that rightly this morning. Um, so we might actually live as your image-bearing people in the world. And so, God, I don't have any power to bring that about in and of myself, um, but you do. And so I ask that you would, God, for our good and for your glory, that we might live as your people, we pray. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to be in the book of 1 John, beginning in chapter 1, uh, verse 5, begins this way. This is the message that we've heard from him and that we declare to you, that God is light and that in him there is no darkness at all. For if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word's not in us. 
My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right, now there is a lot going on in these few short verses in our passage this morning, but as we look at it, what I want to show is there's, there's four really important things that we understand uh, that the passage shows us about what we learn about our, our forgiven identity. Four really important things, and the first is simply this. We see the means of our forgiven identity. We see the means for it. See, the passage opens with this reminder that God is utterly holy. Verse 5, John writes, God is is light in him. There is no darkness at all, right? What Sean is saying is that there's, in God, there's no sin in him at all. He is altogether pure, altogether holy, altogether righteous and pure and good. And what happens is uh, John is contrasting that reality of God's holiness with our own sinfulness. He writes in verse eight, if we claim to be without sin, then we're actually deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us, right? You see, this contrast is at the heart of a, a, this tension that runs throughout the whole Bible, is that because sin separates us from God, because God is altogether holy and pure and sin cannot be in his presence, and that's a problem because the reality that you see throughout Scripture is that God's desire is that he might dwell with his people, and sin separates people from God. And so the question is, is how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? And there's this tension throughout all of Scripture that until we get to Jesus where there's this deep tension in that reality. And the answer is, is that there needs to be a way for a sinful people to be forgiven and cleansed and made pure. There needs to be a way. And, and that, in some ways, kind of seems a little counterintuitive to us because we think, well, if God is God and he's really in charge, like, can he just forgive and, like, it'll work out? Like, he's the one who's in charge anyway, so why can't he just do it if that's what he really wants to do? And the reality is, is that the whole Old Testament is really, in a lot of ways, about highlighting the fact that God just can't forgive sin. He can't just wipe our slates clean. You see, there has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a payment. Hebrews chapter 9 reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And that can seem a bit extreme to us. It seems a bit extreme until you realize that, that sin is not fundamentally bad behavior. That sin is fundamentally a mutinous rebellion against God. You see, sin is the choice to reject God and his good authority. And it leads to all kinds of bad behaviors, but that's what it is at its root. Instead of God telling us who we are and what is right and true and good, we want to be the ones that decide who we are and what is right and true and good. And we want to decide what is best for us and is best for the world. And at the heart of that is the idea that we want to be God. And so what we do is we oust God as king and we enthrone ourselves as little g-gods of our lives and of our world. And, and it's spiritual mutiny, which is why you can't just take it back, right? You can't just stage a coup and then apologize for it. That's not how that works. You see, the reality is, is that if God does not demand a payment for sin, then he is not just. And if God is not just, then he is not good. You see, if God is not just, then he's not good and there's no reason to worship him. See, there has to be a payment for sin. Otherwise, God is not good and he's not just. And the point that John is making in verse 7 is that, is that Jesus' blood, that's the payment for our sin. 
That his blood is the means of our forgiveness. That his blood is the means by which God can forgive and cleanse a sinful people and yet still be just. You see, Jesus' blood, it pays the penalty for our sins so that you and I might be forgiven and cleansed and made righteous so that you and I might truly know and be known by God, have a real ongoing relationship with him that we might be able to dwell with a holy God. John goes on at the end of the passage and and then verse 2 of chapter 2 to describe how Jesus, he says, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. A theological term there for what John is getting at is the idea that Jesus is our propitiation, which means that he is the one who doesn't just pay the penalty for our sin, but that he is the one who absorbs all of God's wrath for our sin. He is the one who soaks all of it up. And so that God's wrath, righteous and just for our sin, is not just paid by Jesus, but he absorbs all of it. His sacrifice is the sufficient payment for your sin. His sacrifice is enough. And that is so important that you understand, that you get that. The means for your forgiveness is Jesus' blood. Because what happens is oftentimes it's easy for us to read the first few verses of this passage and and to think that it's our redeemed actions that are the means of our forgiveness, that the degree to which we've stopped sinning is the degree to which God loves and accepts you, that the degree to which you walk in the light and in holiness as Jesus does, that that's the degree to which you are forgiven and cleansed. But look closely. John is not saying that our lives and our actions are the means of our forgiveness. He's saying that they're evidence for it, but they're not the means. And the reality is that when you confuse the means of your forgiveness with the evidence for it, you will endlessly be ruled by guilt and shame and condemnation. You'll endlessly be ruled by guilt and shame and condemnation because your sanctification is an ongoing, slow, and nonlinear process. For all of us, we look at our lives and there are all kinds of inconsistencies in the way that we reflect and bear Jesus' image. There are all kinds of places where sin still rules in our lives, where we're caught in patterns of it, where ongoingly we see the ways that we do not rightly reflect and bear Jesus' image. And if if we don't just receive Jesus' forgiveness by faith one day and then just immediately perfectly reflect him in every way the next, that would be super nice but that's not how that works. And if you confuse the evidence of your forgiveness with the means of it, you will just endlessly ride the roller coaster of guilt and shame and condemnation. Because some days you'll feel like you are doing pretty good and others you will realize that you are hopelessly lost in it. And however you are feeling that day will be how things are going or you'll just be endlessly full of self-righteousness and pride. And you'll just constantly look down on others because you think that you'll have done enough when you never have. You see, and that's not what John wants for the Christians that he writes this letter to. In fact, that's actually the very opposite. That's the very opposite of his goal in writing it. He wants them to be confident in their standing before God. He wants them to be full of hope and joy and and confidence because of that, which is why he reminds them that Jesus' blood is what makes them forgiven and pure, that he paid the penalty that their sin demanded, that he is their atoning sacrifice, which means that their relationship with God is not based on their ongoing 
ongoing work and performance, but is based on Jesus' finished work and performance on their behalf. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, God doesn't love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ. And that's an all or nothing kind of degree. And so by faith, you have put your trust in Jesus' work on your behalf to be the means for your forgiveness. Then you are in Christ. And you are forgiven. He's the means for it. And so Jesus' blood is the means for our forgiveness. God, in Christ, God didn't just ignore our sin. He died for it. He covered it. He paid for it. And, and that brings us to the second thing that we see about forgiveness, our forgiven identity in the passage this morning, is that we see the extent of it. You see both the means and the extent. You see, verse 7 doesn't just say that Jesus' blood cleanses us from some sin. It doesn't just say that Jesus' blood cleanses us from most sin. It doesn't say Jesus' blood cleanses us from past sin. It says Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin, and all means all. It means past and present and future, that Jesus died for all your sin and that he, his blood paid the price for all of it, that he is your atoning sacrifice, that his sacrifice on your behalf, it completely, fully, all the way paid the penalty for our sin, that he absorbed all of God's just wrath for it. God has no wrath left for you for your sin if by faith you've trusted in Jesus. The Apostle Paul, he echoes these words in Colossians chapter 2. He says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Verse 14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the See, the thing that John is trying to remind these Christians of is that you are not still on trial. You're not still on trial. That there has already been a verdict that has been rendered. If by faith you have put your trust in Jesus and that verdict is not guilty, J.D. Greer, one pastor, he sums it up this way. He says, Jesus' death wiped out not only the presence of existing condemnation, he wiped out the possibility of future condemnation. His work makes us completely forgiven, not partially. And you can't miss that because oftentimes what happens is we tend to think and live as though Jesus' forgiveness just covers our past sins, but now we're on some kind of ongoing probation. And then we have to make sure we don't mess up the probation so that we get kicked back to wherever it is that we're trying not to be. And so we live oftentimes with a sense of fear and worry and anxiety, wondering if we, we've done enough or looking at our lives and thinking that God's not pleased with us or that we haven't made up for all of the things that we have done wrong. You see, but that's not how God sees us. By faith, we put our trust in Jesus. Then God looks at us as Jesus. We have his standing. We have his acceptance. Our sin has been removed. Psalm 103, David writes about this reality. He says, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, forget not all his benefits. He forgives all our sins. He heals all our diseases. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those fear him. For as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our sins from us. 
You see, your identity by faith in Jesus is one who is completely forgiven. Completely forgiven. And understanding that Jesus is both the means of our forgiveness and the way that our, the extent of our forgiveness is complete, that is super important. And it changes our, uh, changes our lives on an ongoing basis, John says. It's not just about uh, getting us, moving us into a right place of right relationship with God, but that reality, that's the actual thing that keeps us and maintains us in that spot. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does, when anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And that brings us to the third thing that we see about our forgiven identity. We see the defender of it. We see the means, the extent. We see the defender of our forgiveness. You see, Jesus, John says, he is our advocate. He's not just the one who pays our penalty. He is the one who stands before the Father on our behalf. An advocate, it's a, a legal proxy. It's a legal representative. He's the one who stands in for us as our representative. And what that means is that Jesus is kind of like your defense attorney, that he stands before the Father representing you. And what it's so important that you see is that it doesn't say that Jesus, our defense attorney, is Jesus Christ, the, the merciful one. It doesn't say that he's Jesus Christ, the persuasive one. It doesn't say that he is Jesus Christ, the merciful one. He is all of those things, but it says he is the righteous one. Why? Why is that the word John uses? Because the reality is that our advocate, Jesus, is not up there standing before the Father pleading for mercy. He's not standing up there, God, I know Brandon messed up again. I know he kept promising that he would live this way, but he kept messing up. I, I get it. I understand. But would you just give him one more chance, Father, for, for my sake, right? For me, would you just, would you just one more time forgive him? Don't, don't, don't wipe him out. That's not the reality of what is going on up there. You see, what's happening is that verse 9 doesn't say that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and merciful to forgive us. It says that he is faithful and just to forgive you. You see, Jesus is not up there asking for forgiveness. He's not up there standing before the Father pleading for mercy. He is up there demanding that God be just. And when our sin is brought before the Father, Jesus stands as our representative, not making excuses for us, but saying, yes, Father, they have sinned again, but I have lived the life that they were supposed to live and I have died the death that their sin deserved. And by faith, they have trusted in my work on their behalf. I have paid the penalty their sin deserves. And by faith, they are wrapped up in me. And so, Father, it would be unjust of you to demand a payment for their sin. I have already paid it. And when you get that reality, when you see that Jesus is not standing before the Father pleading on his behalf that God will be merciful to you, but when you get that he is one who is there demanding that God be just as he always is, you have this unshakable kind of confidence and hope. 
Because it doesn't matter. Jesus is not bending the Father's will to his performance. He is demanding that God be just as he is. He is pleading that God would be who he says that he already is. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice and our advocate before the Father. And so our identity by faith in him is one who is completely forgiven. And we have utter confidence because of his work as our advocate on our behalf. And that reality transforms our lives in a couple of really huge ways. First, is that it frees you from condemnation. It frees you from condemnation. See, condemnation is this legal term. It means that there's a charge that's been held against you, a a debt that you owe. But for those who by faith have put their trust in Jesus, there is no more debt. It's been canceled. Colossians 3, remember, Paul writes that God in Christ nailed our, our legal indebtedness to the cross. It's done, finished, paid for. And so as a result, when the voice of the accuser comes at you and says, how could you live like this? How could you call yourself a Christian? Do you see all this hypocrisy in you? Do you see all your failures? How could you ever come before the Father? You get to respond, not with excuses and not with with pithy pleas, but you get to say, I know. I know. And so does he. And he has already paid my debt. to have hope because of him. And so I want to encourage you to instead of allowing the voices of your own heart or the voice of the accuser to condemn you, to remember to rest in the identity you have because of Jesus. He says that you are forgiven and paid for, cleansed, made righteous. John chapter 3 later says, He says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. How do you set your heart at rest in his presence? It says, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our heart. You see, all the time we let what others, what the accuser, even what we think about ourselves be the thing that defines us. But God is the one who is greater and he's the one who gets to define you. And so rest in who he says you are. It's a better identity. You get to rest in him. And so we don't have to perform before God or people because he knows who we are and has loved us in the midst of it. And we don't have to pretend before God or people because he has already loved us while we were at our worst. And so instead of running from God, we get to run to him for help and the power to actually overcome sin that we cannot overcome without him. You see, but that reality of our forgiveness and our identity as forgiven, it doesn't just, doesn't just free us from condemnation. It actually motivates our pursuit of holiness and it motivates our pursuit of ongoing lives of obedience. Tim Keller, he sums it up this way. He says, your incentive for obedience is not a fear that you're going to lose God's love, not at all. He says, your incentive for obedience is that you have an unlosable love that was given to you at incredible so you don't want to trample it. How can I trample a love like that? You see, when you see the great cost of God's forgiveness for you, it will motivate you to live a life of obedience unto him out of joy because you've already been given something you could never earn. There's life there in it. 
as well. That reality, third, it empowers you to be someone who's characterized by real forgiveness. When you see Colossians chapter 3 says, he, Paul writes, he says, bear with one another, forgive one another, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. When you see the great cost at which it costs God to forgive you, then the cost at which it costs you to forgive others will seem wildly small. You will have a right perspective. And you will see that God was not begrudging to, to pay the cost so that you might forgive him. But as Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. For the joy set before him paid the penalty we were owed. We see the good news of God's forgiveness in Christ. It enables us to be free from condemnation, to pursue a life of holiness and obedience unto him, to be characterized by forgiveness. But there's something else you can't miss. You see, because while we see in our passage the means of God's forgiveness and we see the extent of our forgiven identity and we see as well the defender of it, there's also one more thing. We see the requirement to receive it. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you see, the only requirement to receive the forgiveness and the forgiven identity you need is that you admit that you need forgiveness. That's the requirement. John Gerstner, one author, he puts it this way. He says, the way to God is wide open. There is nothing standing between the sinner and God. There is nothing to hinder. No sin can hold him back except the sinner's own good works. Nothing can keep him from Christ but his delusion that he does not need him and that his own good works can satisfy God. For all you need is need. The way you get the advocate, the way that you get the one whose blood pays the penalty for your sin completely is when you confess that you need his forgiveness. The reality is that that is hard for us to do to admit our insufficiencies, to admit our utter inability to rescue ourselves. That is hard for us to do, and yet is the one thing that keeps us from receiving the kind of forgiven identity that actually empowers the life you're longing for. You see, in what we're doing every week when we take communion is we're remembering our need for a Savior. We're remembering our need for forgiveness, and that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And we're remembering ourselves, we're celebrating that it was not our blood that was shed for our forgiveness, but Jesus's blood on our behalf. That his body was broken in our place for us. That his blood was shed so that you and I might be forgiven and made pure. That we might receive a righteousness that is not our and so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. There's one thing that can do it. It's the blood of Jesus trusted in by faith. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember and to proclaim again how much we needed forgiveness and how greatly Jesus has met our needs.
And so if you've trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, if he is the one whose blood shed on your behalf is the means and for your complete forgiveness, then go back during our time of communion. There's a table on the left and on the right. You can grab a bread and dip it in the juice or take one of the packs back to your seat. But do it in joy as you remember all that he has done for you. But some of you are here this morning and that's not where you're at. And you're still wrestling with who Jesus really is and wrestling with the idea of even admitting that you are one who needs forgiveness. I want to encourage you this morning that God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He is after a heart that rests in him completely. And so if by faith this morning, for the first time, you want to put your hope in Jesus, his blood shed on your behalf to be the penalty that pays, to be the price paid for your, for your sin, then go back during communion and do it in worship as you receive and remember all of his grace made known to you. But as you do, wherever you are at this morning, I want to encourage you to talk with God. Some of you are here this morning and you need to receive Jesus' forgiveness for the first time. You need to let his blood pay the penalty that you owe. And you need to let his blood be the thing that sets you free from the bonds of sin. And you need to let his blood be the thing that changes you from the inside out. You see, the message of the gospel is not Jesus plus. It's not Jesus plus your own effort. It's not Jesus plus your own trying hard. It's not Jesus plus what you bring to the table. You don't bring anything to the table. It's his blood alone that cleanses you from sin. Receive his offer of it for you. Some of you are here this morning and you know that it's Jesus' blood that offers you forgiveness. And you, you realize that your hope is in that, but instead of resting in the identity that Jesus gives you as one who is his forgiven, image-bearing representative, uh, you, you feel like you need to keep adding to it. Instead of resting in the identity he gives you, you keep looking to your own effort and merit to be the thing that, that's the, the, the scales by which you are right with him. And I want to call you as well, rest in the identity he offers you. Lastly, some of you are here this morning and you need to stop taking advantage of the forgiveness that you are offered in Jesus. You see, it is so easy for us sometimes to forget the immeasurable cost at which our forgiveness was bought. And because we forget the cost, we treat it lightly and we see our sin as not that big of a deal. But the reality is, is that when you see rightly the immeasurable cost that God had to give his very own son for you, what happens is that you will start to see your sin, not as in a condemning way, but you will start to see it as a real problem. And you will stop taking advantage of God's grace and forgiveness. And you will long not to trample on the, the forgiveness that he gives you. So maybe you are here this morning and you need to receive his forgiveness for the first time. Maybe you are here this morning, you need to rest in it again. Maybe you are here this morning and you need to stop taking advantage of it. But wherever you are at, the invitation is that we might see that Jesus' blood is the means for our complete forgiveness. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we're so grateful that we get to come and gather and worship you, not because we are worthy or qualified, but because you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of your son. God, we need you to root that reality deeply in our hearts. God, otherwise we will just endlessly be full of shame and guilt and condemnation or self-righteousness and pride. God, we won't have any sense of freedom and we won't have any good news to offer anyone else. Jesus, root the reality of our forgiven identity in you so deeply in us that what it does is frees us and motivates us to be a people who not only forgive as though you have forgiven us, but who are characterized by a relentless pursuit of a life that honors you. God, only you can change that in us. And so we ask in response to the good news of the gospel that you would, that you might produce in us, that you might make us a people who bears your image and who glorifies you, we pray. Amen.